Welcome back to the Our Voices podcast. I'm Freddie Stewart. This episode is a conversation between Our Economy's Europe editor, Laura Basu, and academic and author, Gargi Bhattacharya. Gargi is a professor of sociology at the University of East London and author of the book, Rethinking Racial Capitalism, Questions of Reproduction and Survival. She has written widely in the fields of racism, sexuality, global cultures, and the war on terror. This interview centers around one fundamental question. Is capitalism racist? The subject of an upcoming Our Voices documentary. Gargi begins by laying out her understanding of racial capitalism, what it means, and how it differs from the traditional liberal conceptions of racism and anti-racism. So here's our Voices interview with Gargi Bhattacharya. Well, the title of this podcast is, Is Capitalism Racist? And you are definitely the person to talk to about this because you've literally written a book on this, haven't you? Well, that's interesting in itself, isn't it? Because I think there's quite a big journey between discussing racial capitalism, which I do, and then saying, well, is capitalism racist? Because even that framing of the question kind of assumes something about, well, who's the subject doing things? What is racism? So, I mean, I guess what I think is interesting is that in a kind of liberal framing, even in this moment when there's all of this exciting new energy about addressing racism, there's a real will from all kinds of quite dodgy parties to say oh are things racist as if everything can be imagined within a kind of liberal political framework as if there are actors who are racist or not racist there are things that are racist or not racist rather than thinking of racism as one of the structuring logics of our unequal society that runs along other kinds of exploitative or unjust logics that sift people into early death or slightly extended life. Does that make any sense? Well maybe that's a good place to start then with a definition of racism. Mm -hmm. How would you define racism then? Quite a lot of people who I like to read and work around think how um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore defines racism as kind of a a state-sponsored predilection to early death or premature death is quite an interesting way of thinking about it. So it's structural, it's physically damaging, it's a constraining of life choices, it's deeply linked to the other kind of overall structuring forces of our societies, and it positions you according to a kind of perceived or category or attributed identity along this line of how vulnerable you might be to premature death or pain and I like that but it's quite hard to then transfer that to how most people talk about racism and I think most people talk about racism in terms of do some groups of people hate other groups of people I think that's a real problem for us the kind of reduction of racism to something that happens between individuals as if it's a matter of either goodwill or ignorance as if all people who get categorized as not racially disprivileged constantly enacting a kind of supremacist privilege all of the time. That makes it quite difficult for us to then to imagine politically about, well, what would an anti-racist politics be? 
as long as we think that racism happens between you and me and it's because I didn't know enough about what you like to eat for your dinner and what your mum liked to wear at home, our responses to racism can't go much beyond, well, can I just train you about what I like to eat for dinner or can I train you to be nicer? Now, all of that is a liberal capture of something which I think is much more entrenched and endemic in the capitalist societies we've seen so far and could not be addressed like that. And in fact, it's even, I think, a kind of commodification of anti-racism against justice, you know, against proper routes to justice. I think the idea of kind of structural racism is quite hard for people to grasp. And you just said that kind of racism is something, you know, embedded into our political economy. How does that work then? What is, you, you talk about racial capitalism. What is that and how does that work? Okay, racial capitalism is a term that even if it's not coined by Cedric Robinson, it's, it's very much developed and extended and popularised by Cedric Robinson. Cedric Robinson is a very influential, exciting African-American thinker and writer who only died two or three years ago. And one of his big projects is to try and think about why is mainstream Western Marxism so unable to encompass the black experience? And he means the black experience very much as the African diaspora. And what he thinks is that Western Marxism is so kind of enthralled to an idea of the wage relation and the proletariat as a kind of abstracted entity who are only oppressed and exploited in one certain way, but the whole history of the ways in which African peoples have been dispossessed, transplanted by force, exploited, and made into sources of value can't be registered. And if you can't register that, it's like you missed out half of the history of capitalism. Like what, what are you trying to understand then? So he says, well, okay, maybe there's three key areas in which we need to think about what we mean by understanding capitalism differently. We need to stop thinking about our understanding of capitalism as defined and predetermined historical stages, that kind of very narrow idea of historical materialism, as if there's only one way, there's only one route to industrialization and then freedom, because that doesn't really fit. Once you start to look beyond some places in the global north, it isn't clear at all that that can fit what we, certainly what we've learned since Marx about economic trajectories. Then maybe we also need to stop thinking that how capitalism works is by making us all the same, by homogenizing us. It's a bit of a caricature, but there's a kind of optimistic reading through Western Marxism, which kind of thinks, well, once we all become proletarianized, we'll all be the same. And all those ugly things about homophobia and sexism and racism, they'll disappear because we'll all become the same kind of proletariat subject. So just, just keep getting to that and then the revolution will fix it for everyone because we're going to be almost the same then, or actually the same. Robinson says, well, you know, look around. I'm not sure that that's how industrialization has happened, either pre-industrialization or industrialization. He says, actually, capitalism kind of embeds itself in pre-existing differentiations and it exacerbates them it splits them further it kind of mobilizes like a parasite it um, sits on other kinds of human division and mobilizes them as a way of setting and train these parallel sets of accumulative practices and once we think those two things that there's no set stages that it goes through and it doesn't make us all the same 
we need to think differently about what it means to try and overthrow capitalism. So that's Robinson's third big point. He says that we need to think differently about how we think about political agency. Marxism is a, a wonderful body of work in terms of imagining how those who have been done to will be the agents of revolution. But that's, that's what Marxism does. It gives us a kind of model of understanding a total structure of injustice that encompasses all of society and says, and actually there's a political leverage and agency that comes from being proletarianized. That dispossession is exactly what will make you into the revolutionary subject with others. And Robinson says, yeah, there's great things about that. But again, look at the moments of anti-capitalist eruption that we have lived through. And in particular, look at the experience of the African diaspora and see that political agency cannot be mapped so mechanically onto a certain moment of like, oh, if the means of production develop like this and this population has this done to it, then they somehow through magic develop their class consciousness and overthrow it. Instead, look at the ways in which revolutionary subjects use all kinds of different repertoires, including culture, fellow feeling, emotion, proximity. And he's in particular, he rereads re CLR James talking about um, the Black Jacobins and says, well, look, that's, if that's not an anti-capitalist revolution, what, it, what is it? Where does it fit? Doesn't fit in this set stages, doesn't fit in homogenization, doesn't fit in mechanical way of, I am the political agent. So because Robinson says these big three things, I like to think, well, this is what I'm trying to, have been trying to work on, that then we need to think a bit more expansively about how the mobilization of racialized categories and racialized divisions both works to allow kind of capitalist expansion, new forms of intensive exploitation, but also makes us just have to try and reimagine what the anti-capitalist subject must be. We need to think differently about our politics. And, that, and then that comes back to all of the, the bad mouthing that people, people on the white left have done about whether anti-racist organizing is anti-capitalist or not. And I think, well, you need to think about what would it mean to be able to see the enemy so you can um, imagine what capitalism is and you imagine the range of violence as it does not only through strictly economic means but also through state violence and then you imagine what it is to develop a class consciousness against that and that has to go beyond wage relations to all kinds of other kinds of divisions and here and thereness. But I think it's really interesting this idea that capitalism kind of hooks on to existing um, hierarchies or divisions and then kind of uses them for accumulation so racism existed before mm. but it's useful it's useful for profit making mm. so it's continued and then in a way that kind of exacerbates it or makes it worse or creates new kinds of divisions or new mm. kinds of um hierarchies absolutely that but also there's lots of room for new kinds of racism so both kind of um because robinson's talking about the kind of pre-capitalist world and how what we think of as proletarianization is already inhabiting different kinds of ideas of nationhood and ethnic difference. But it also opens the idea that, you know, racism's a, a tricky beast, isn't it? Moves around, new groups emerge, groups that you never thought of before suddenly become, oh, like everyone can see them apparently and then it's time to hate them. And all of that can get folded into the ways in which capitalism is always remaking itself. 
There's always a kind of dance. But, but absolutely, very importantly, that racism doesn't, doesn't only appear with capitalism and there's no reason to think that it's, that it's just a symptom of capitalism, which again, I think has been quite a, quite a prevalent idea across the left as if, oh, well, don't talk to me about racism because that's just a symptom of capitalism. And when we get rid of capitalism, it will go. Well, this is about saying, well, that's just not very historically astute, is it? If you look at how, you know, doesn't doesn't bear any scrutiny at all, really. And what do you think of sort of ideas of intersectionality then? Yeah, no, I see. Oh, this is, I have to be careful here. Because, you know, as with many brown people who work in universities, most of my best friends work on intersectionality in reality. You know, people I'm very close to, but that's, almost become i don't know how it became so you know almost like hegemonic within a certain field very quickly like a few years ago it's like no one knows what you're talking about then suddenly it's on breakfast television and everyone says oh, that's always a bit tricky isn't it when people who don't much like take up your language you think oh, that's not altogether a win is that a win i don't know if it's a win so on the one hand i think of course the debate around intersectionality has transformed how we can think about and talk to each other about inequality and multiple inequalities. And in lots of ways, I think that's more important in political arenas than academic arenas, because you, know, you can kind of feel the change and the ways and, and, and all of the young, young, young women with the banners saying, you know, my feminism is intersectional, it's bullshit and all of that. That's a big shift for someone of my age that, you know, that, that was unspeakable for most white, white women I knew when I was young, that the idea that, not just me, that, effect, that all of our liberatory projects can never be just me. And that I think we need to cling on to. That's a big deal. That's a big game to have a whole generation of activists in many different places who are so deeply schooled in the idea that um, however important my experience is, I have to always imagine freedom as not just me. As, and and, and ex, ex, um, expressly, to imagine freedom for what it would be for people really not like me, which is, I think, a kind of thinking through difference. And that's, and that's a kind of street politics shift, you know, it's a change in consciousness and it changes what's possible. And you can see in the streets how it then is enacted differently, that something different happens. Despite all of that, intersectionality in the academy has kind of become almost like the polite retort to social justice claims. But, um, and I think that's all, you know, and I'm a fine one to say it because I think it's almost happening to racial capitalism now, like quickly, quickly, quickly in the wake of Black Lives Matter. I was suddenly like, if, if we can just teach a, a module on racial capitalism, then you can all get off our backs. So, you know, so e the best tunes it can happen to, but um, our enemies can steal our best songs and repackage them as kind of safer forms of knowledge. But I think that is something like what's happened to the scholarly engagement with ideas of intersectionality not through any fault of any of us but that it's because it has a, because it has a kind of um whiff of diversity management around it or can do in the wrong hands um i think quite a lot of that is happening i'll tell this particular story someone who used to be my manager when we were talking about um in my workplace the awarding gap that why is it that black and brown students consistently are not given as good degrees as white students even though i work in a workplace which is overwhelmingly um 
black and brown students, not for the staff, of course, that's always the case, but for the students. A white manager responded to a kind of concern about that by saying, well, is it really about race? Black feminists would say we need to look at other things. So the use of intersectionality as a way of silencing the anti-racist voice, and particular the voices of black and brown people saying, looks like racism to me, that seems to me quite a practiced rhetorical gesture now in academic spaces, and particularly around race. You know, when you say gender, people don't say, oh, I can't talk about gender, but it's got to be intersectional. But I've been in a whole range of meetings where um, claims and concerns about racism are raised. Oh, no, well, I happen to think that this is not an intersectional way of thinking. So, I think, oh, that's something tricky there, isn't there? That an analysis which says you can never think of one thing alone can be used in a context of power to silence a focused political claim. But then on the other hand, you, have, you still have people saying all this focus on race or gender mm. is a distraction from the real issue and the real issue is class. Like that, I don't mm. think that argument's gone, gone anywhere. And certainly in Amsterdam, there, there's, a, there's kind of public debate about this going on uh -huh. right now. And there are people, certain uh, white men usually, who, are, who mm. are saying, you know, I'll stop talking about burkas. The real struggle, the real struggle is class. Yeah. You see, that's interesting, isn't it? I guess because I, I work in British academia and, um, and to my shame, really only in English speaking academia, that the, the class boys really got cleared out of British academia, partly in different, not explicitly politically, but because of different um, coals within the British, British university system and the remaking of disciplines in different ways. And I think partly accidentally, there's, there's a real muting of that class voice, which was much louder, and I have to say really importantly loud for my earlier education, but you know, if I think of people who I've um, read or been taught by, you know, the idea that, that learning about the world is partly about dismantling capitalism, that all comes from that. But those people kind of aren't, aren't there so much. And I think also in British public life for a long time, partly because of the Blair years and the kind of diversion of, um, centre-left politics to a, a different kind of project no one could talk about class for a while despite britain always you know every you know what a joke to say in britain you can't talk about class you know you cannot wake up in the morning in britain without everything every minute of it being about class and yet in the scholarly discourse don't say don't say the c word anymore and that's only been resurrected quite recently so in that time there was a different it, it went away a bit and even to talk about capitalism you know, that seen as actively impolite, even when I was writing the racial capitalism book, people go, a bit, you know, that's saying capitalism is worse than saying, saying racial. And yet that shift has happened now, I think. So everyone yeah. is saying, oh, no, do you know what? We might think of it differently, but capitalism's the thing. That's our shared enemy. So we're talking about racial capitalism, mm -hmm. kind of how it works and what it means. Where does the nation state fit into this relationship between racism and capitalism? One of the things that's interesting about racial capitalism it's, it, as a framing idea is that it's a way of starting from a different place than from the nationalist project, because there is, you know, there's certainly quite a, an established and very you know, wonderful English language literature about 
racist state projects, some of my work is in that field as well, or intersects with that field. But that's often contained within a kind of national boundary. So you think of the, of the nation as your imagined political space and also the nation state as your core actor. Whereas I think partly why I'm interested in the idea of racial capitalism as a concept, because it's a bit, it's stretched out from the idea of the state, but it means there's a kind of mystery or confusion about, well, what is the relationship? Just as, you know, there's three libraries of books between what is capitalism and what is a capitalist state, there's a kind of whole set of, well, there's a relationship here between the racial state and racial capitalism, but what happens in between? That's quite hard to map. Um, and of course, you could probably only ever map you know, one case study at a time, but that makes it hard to then tell the, you know, the analytic story. I'm a bit interested in some of the ways in which we're living, we've been living through a time for some time in which uh, the nation state must cooperate with other nation states in order to enact a racial capitalist project, or that state racism needs to go beyond its borders even as it claims sovereignty all the time. You know, that's such a kind of Brexity thing to say, but you know, I can't, can't live here and not be in that particular sickness. So we're living in a time in which bordering is an extensive practice across all regions of the world. It's a practice that is enacted as a kind of um, both display of sovereignty and a certain kind of um, reassertion of the claim of the nation states and it's literally about territory it's saying this is our territory we decide who comes into this space you know that's what it means to be a functioning state look i'm doing it um we decide that's how we enact national belonging this is how you know if you're in or out this is how we say who's lesser this is how we regulate labor markets if you're lesser then you don't have any protection in the labor market this is how we decide um, who lives and who dies, if you don't belong, you and your children can die in the sea or in the camp. All of this stuff is constantly being re reasserted and not just in Europe. I don't think any, I think none of those bordering projects at present can work apart from in a kind of global system of bordering. And so there's all kinds of things about bordering which are, I say my border is here because my neighbour says their border is there. Big part of what we would previously thought of as diplomacy um, is now about this management of population flows or where not flow population stuckness between nation states um, the um, different ways in which how hard or soft you are about the movement of people what you will allow you know the trading of people who are not your citizens but the trading of third nation people or, or un unstateless people as part of an, a wider set of international arrangements when you want something, including stupid little things like a trade deal or a kind of IT deal or all this stuff. All of that is kind of in play. But all I can say is that I think that means we need to think of the um, nation states as actors in a global system of racial capitalism, which goes beyond any nation state, which is not a very insightful thing to say as far as I can get for now. That's super interesting. What do you think about calls for open borders it's kind of a it's kind of a question that's come up a bit lately but i don't think it's i don't think it's really broken into mm -hmm. the mainstream entirely but it's kind of hovering there what, what do you think about that well i'm so predictable obviously i am an open no borders no nations kind of person uh, and i think that that also echoes other kinds of um emergent politics moving to um, talking about an anti-capitalist politics which is not so based in an old 
older view of the labour movement and a certain kind of working class subject. So I think all those things kind of fit together. And I think partly that's an effective link that people, because of who is in the spaces of understanding what racial capitalism feels like, of how it cuts short some lives, of how it um, splits labour markets, but also splits families, how it all kind of disperses us. But that's, I think, the, the popular understanding of racial capitalism. That's kind of the street activist understanding of racial capitalism. And for that to be challenged, of course, no borders has to be part of it because bordering is a central technique of, of global racial capitalism. It may be that different nation states are themselves placed in a hierarchy of power and influence and domination in that global system of bordering. But the answer is not to let, even though I did laugh when Bangladesh said, ha ha, you Europeans, you'll have to be quarantined now. The answer is not to allow the global south to be, oh, now it's our turn to be nasty border guards. That can't be our vision. Our vision must be to say that not only the prevention of movement, but the very particular kind of guiding of the speed and direction of movement of human beings around the world as we just try to survive in the in the pursuit of just living our lives that that's one of the ways in which capitalist death that racial capitalist death is enacted upon us that's what racism means so race i of course if someone calls me packing on the bus i think they're racist but the racism i care about is not so much the woman on the bus i wish you'd unlearn it but she said it but the but the racism which says these populations are disposable, expendable, and we will shunt them around the world and make them stop here. A million on, in Chittagong, you know, however many in Calais, some will die in the water, and that that will be part of what global governance in the 21st century will be. Let us all learn that that is racism, because that helps us, doesn't it? It helps us see each other. Do you think it is possible to have, is it possible to have nation states without borders or how would, like, if you, if you sort of think about the reality of what a world would look like without borders, what, what do you think? Like, what would that look oh, like? Well, that's, so you didn't tell me we were going to play this game. <laughs> well, it's very interesting you ask that because it goes to one of the, the core issues about bordering in our time, isn't it? So in, and I do think it is interesting that we talk briefly about 2008 crash and before that people used to bang on about globalization and a kind of slightly grudging acceptance that perhaps the nation state has a limited reach in terms of economic management. So I'm in my 50s and for most of my life the main claim the nation state meant was economic management, certainly in kind of Western Europe. Okay, what the job of the nation state is to tax and spend and provide services and the boundary for nation states with national economy this this is the job of an elected government in a nation state we've been through a kind of medium period in which that has been eroded and eroded and eroded so there's a period in which you now suddenly globalization oh no Keynesianism is over what can the what can national government do and now since the crash a kind of very you know i think still emerging idea of what does economic policy in any one nation mean. I think that's, I don't think that's decided. And COVID will rip up any small things we've decided against. So we're still trying to work that out. In that period, um, bordering 
suddenly gets really kind of promoted. You know, it used to be quite a lowly set of policies, but becomes promoted to be, oh, well, you can't do anything else. But the one thing I can do is spot the foreigners at my border and decide who comes in or who doesn't. So it's a kind of performative element in a, mo in a different moment of political and economic crisis, I think for many nation states, which bordering kind of becomes, oh, whether I want to be a liberal borderer or a racist borderer, that set of practices, state practices, becomes the one which, well, at least I can do that. I can't do anything else, but I can do that. That, I think, crowds our political imagination as if, like, well, as if that's all the state does. Of course, states have often not done that. Relatively historically recent, that's, that that was what part of what nation states need to do. That all this monitoring of movement, actually, in human history, relatively recent, that we even have the kind of techniques to do that. And significant parts of the world are constantly in a process of experimenting with semi-open borders within a region. Europe is that kind of experiment. Europe has a difficulty because it wants it both ways. It wants free movement for some and absolute bordering for others. That's what makes it a trickier. But the experiment in free movement is kind of saying, you know what, maybe bordering isn't the top action of the nation state maybe that's not the characteristic maybe we can just stop it because we think something else is more important like staying alive so you all you have to do uh, this you just again these all british things you just have to imagine the eu without racism on a global level what about some of the other demands of the black lives uh, movement like reparations is one of them have you thought about oh. these calls for reparations or what you think about that so I think that's I think that's a really necessary conversation, but I think part of the politics are in the conversation because it's a whole conversation about what can be rectified through economic means and through that a kind of opening up of questions about what economic rights and economic well-being are. So I think it, it's like lots of um, abolitionist kind of needles that it's kind of you wedge in the needle and then the whole the whole wasp's nest is kind of shaken up. So in some ways, I think that um, an anti-capitalist politics and an anti-capitalist economics, even maybe even more than that, needs to have a strand in which we debate what reparations would be. Because that's, but that's not, that's not an op-ed length kind of document. That's a, a whole set of practice about what if we were to build the new world that we are all dreaming of one aspect would be what would be repair and that includes economic repair and then so and then that requires us to think differently about just as we must think differently about the nation state and our rights to move then we need to think differently about our rights to live and then what recompense would be and actually oh, so this is the kind of thing that makes people hate me i don't think an economic contract can fix the harm I think lots of people are involved in reparations that, you know, you know, of course, but what can you pay for genocide? You can't, you know, or generational dispossession or, you know, enslavement, killing, kind of ethnic cleansing. You know, there isn't a price. Whatever price you give is not the price. And I'm not even talking about then and who you pay the price to. But to rebuild economic relations in which you start to think instead of, transaction value extraction accumulation and instead think about mutuality survival repair that that's a that's the new world of economic life 
and I think you know that's that's a shared project you know for all of us yeah I kind of feel like like I think in practice it would be an incredibly difficult thing to do but I think going down that path of thinking along those lines can lead to some much more profound ideas because if you go if you start going down that road I think where you end up is some is somewhere completely different yes yeah to you would if you if you could really calculate sort of how much these reparations would have to be in order to enact them you would have to have a completely different society anyway Mm. (laughs) yeah yeah I think it's really interesting and the imaginative imagination part is important isn't it because for all of us on the left it's also about what language do we employ in order to reimagine society Mm. you know that has to that's what makes us who we are that what we stop that's what stops us being diversity trainers that we are think saying not that you could tinker with this and make it better but we need to together reimagine because there's nothing here that we want to be there and so i think to not engage in the discussion around reparations limits us again that kind of shift in the debate of like okay what have we thought of um economic life as repair rather than equal distribution and i think we have to move on that idea of equal distribution that's another good song of ours that's been taken by our our enemies to beat us yeah something i've been struggling with because i've been writing this book for a while about what would a better society what would a good society look like and looking at different things like the economy what would a good economy look like politics you know Mm -hmm. looking at things like um internationalism and globalization and things Mm -hmm. like that the scale of the society, looking at um, the family and gender, all of these things. But it kind of comes back to what you said near the beginning about some people think that if you just end capitalism, then racism would kind of automatically end. And I wonder like, if you're thinking about good, you know, how to organize a society well, how to, how to create a good society, how do you think about that in terms of race? Like, How do you create a... Well, uh, you know, I was thinking about things like universal basic income or the commons, say, or, mm. you know, decommodification. Or How do you bring race into that much more centrally so that it's not just a side issue? Does this mm-hmm. make sense? No, no, absolutely. I hear what you're saying. I'm very aware that quite often now things I talk about or, or I write about seem like I'm never talking about racism, whereas I think I'm always talking about racism because it, once you stop talking about racism in these quite narrow confines of this attack happened to this person because of what they look like this name got called hmm. then it's like what, what where is the race and I said no it's, it's everywhere oh what, what when are you going to tr- address it then changing our political language of imagination and cooperative building so that when I say intersectionality in the streets not in the academy or and what that means in terms of alliance building and and moving together or to think about repair at the centre of our politics. I think those things, you can see little shoots of what that would mean to organise as anti-racists across the piece for a good society. Because instead of it's like, oh, there's a set of issues to address, one's housing, one's income, one's racism. Instead, there's an unjust world in which we are positioned against each other in order to be moving together towards a better place we must interact like this so it's like instead of the goal it it becomes put more in the practice now some of that i don't i don't know if that's sufficient i think it's what some people are trying to do and they're the kinds of people that i 
take strength and energy from. Most of them are a lot younger than me, but you know, they let me hang around as their auntie and I'm really happy about that. And I think that's also what living through moments of historical possibility probably feels like, that there's a kind of, we're not quite there yet. The talk and the action and the goals, they're not quite in alignment. You know, we're not a big mass movement where someone's going to loudspeaker the agenda at the top, maybe somewhere in Washington or London or Delhi, wherever, and everyone hears it. You know, it's not the call to prayer. That's not how we're organised. But there's something happening simultaneously in different places about a slight stretching out between how you articulate our understanding of an unbearable in injustice and how we mobilise as a mixed group against that. I think actually in similar ways, some of the stuff against sexual violence in India seem to have moments of it. Some of the stuff against anti-gay laws in India seem to have moments of it. Um, some of the stuff against sexual violence in different parts of the world just have like these little moments when it's the particular claim suddenly reaches into people's heads and hearts and it can spread. And then, and then people are suddenly able to very, very quickly make these alliances between a whole range of different claims. Okay, last question then. You, uh, near the beginning, you were talking about Cedric Robinson and um, racial capitalism, and you talked about a, a new kind of agent. And I think what you've said just then kind of comes back to that. If, if we're thinking about racial capitalism, who is the anti-capitalist agent? Right, okay. And I think partly Cedric Robinson is kind of reclaiming the... Well, he, he writes about the black radical tradition. So he's in particular saying that the African diaspora can take, gives us one model, he says it's not the only model, of looking at how people become revolutionary agents despite their structural position. Even though their structural and historical position, all the books say, well, you shouldn't be able to do anything. Lo and behold, these, these are people doing stuff. And doing stuff that is kind of, shifts the moment like real not just you know i did a bit of tinkering but whoa you know that that was the world shifting kind of set of actions of and of collective actions so i think in similar ways we need to open ourselves to a kind of promiscuous view of what the political agent can be i'm not sure that most people in any of the parts of the world where i i have access to what they're writing or saying believe that there's one agent of history who is made through something like industrial capitalism, not least because that's all changed and is organised differently, that looks a certain way, that we know what the world-changing political actions will be. I think there's a kind of openness to how urgent the situation is. Our collective survival is really under question and that when people come together, sometimes momentarily, sometimes for longer, to say, actually, my survival is your survival there isn't there's no difference between them almost regardless of the ways in which they articulate that claim as long as it is about this is our slow or quick death and to escape it we must do this thing together that seems to me what the next you know what the anti-capitalist subject looks like for us right now and i think people know each other and see each other and even if they don't speak in those words that's all it's already happening so it kind of even doesn't matter if we write about it or not because it's already there it's lived it's there that's what right, i think you sound very you sound hopeful yeah it is it's yeah. a dangerous time but it's a hopeful time yeah it's none of it is decided now so yeah yeah well thank you so much it's been really great no and i hope that 
when this is all over one day we meet not by a screen to. yeah i really hope so too okay speak to you later bye, bye. Thank you for listening to this Our Voices podcast from Open Democracy. If you enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen, why not head to iTunes, subscribe and leave us a review. Open Democracy is an independent global media platform that is only possible because of your kind donations. To find out more or to make a donation, head to opendemocracy.net.